Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today is a bit of an unusual program. I have two guests, Karen Newell and Eben Alexander, together. It's going to be an open-ended conversation. Eben and Karen are the co-authors of Living in a Mindful Universe. And Eben is the author of the best-selling book, Proof of Heaven, as well as The Map of Heaven. Evan and Karen are based in uh, Virginia, Charlottesville, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Evan and Karen. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for having us on. It's great to be with you, too. Yes, we're looking forward to this conversation. You know, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you mentioned there have been a lot of new developments. So let, let's start there. What What's new in your life since I last interviewed you, I think, uh, two, maybe even three years ago? Well, I would say what's really changed is just, uh, uh, you know, more evidence uh, from our workshops of people having uh, their own kind of awakenings and abilities through uh, through meditation, uh, a lot of the uh, work that is growing, I think, in the scientific community at large. I feel like we're making steps forward that uh, uh, in many ways kind of connect the dots. And this is uh, a collaboration that, that reaches across uh, many fields of science, across neuroscience, philosophy of mind, quantum physics, um, parapsychology. I mean, all of it contributes tremendously. Um, and what I would say is the evidence supporting uh, our uh, idea of, of objective idealism, which was really the main argument we made in our uh, book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, is really kind of all coming together. I mean, the more evidence we assemble, the more it outlines a pathway forward. Uh, that is not the kind of bleak and paltry fiction of materialism, but really a, a cohesive kind of worldview shift that I, that I believe is very favorable to humanity. Uh, I feel like we are definitely making progress uh, along these lines. One of the things I've been aware of is that there are many people now reporting experiences similar to the near-death experience through meditation, through being at the bedside of somebody when they're dying. And I, I bet even, Karen, uh, people who listen to your audio uh, experiences. Yes. Well, I'm one of those people. I didn't have a near-death experience, but over time, I developed so many methods and techniques to expand my consciousness in a conscious fashion, not in an unexpected, you know, take me by surprise fashion. So it's a little bit different, but there are so many people who are able to do this and more and more are learning each day. And we feel like when people are able to really know firsthand, feel firsthand that connection to something greater, that we're more than our physical bodies. When someone can have that direct experience, it makes all the difference. And I know for me, I, I, 
wanted such an experience. I was seeking out a way to expand the mind to, you know, lucid dream to have an out of body experience. And I accomplished all of that just through intention, especially using specific audio recordings. These binaural beat audio recordings are very, very useful. I know for me, when I first even just tried to start to meditate, I couldn't quiet the mind and uh, binaural beat recordings really help to settle the mind. And lots of people, when they first listen to these kinds of recordings, they have that effect right away. They notice, oh my gosh, I, I can, uh, you know, I don't have to just pay attention to those rambling thoughts. There's another part of me inside. We've also heard from a massage therapist recently who started using our recordings while she was giving her massage sessions and people started reporting all kinds of things that she was just kind of uh, watching happen without really telling them what was going on. And they were having some of the deepest experiences while they were getting their massage than they ever had before. And so now when she has new patients come in, she kind of gives them a heads up that this might be a little more relaxing than you're used to. And people are saying, wow, when they come out of this, never having felt this way before. So the more of us who can do this actively and not just wait for some experience to take place, we do this consciously. And the more of us who do this, the more I think that we'll really start to see some change in the world. We don't have to wait for the academic scientists. Each of us as individuals can find this out for ourselves. Well, I did an interview, it's been a couple of years now, with a, a fellow named William Van Gordon. He's a Scottish-British uh, psychologist, and uh, he's an advanced Buddhist meditator. So he published a paper, you may know of it, it's called Meditation Induced Near-Death Experience. I actually have heard of the paper, but I haven't read it. I'm not familiar with it. He works with people that he said they have to have at least 10 years of meditation history. And then he, he gave them uh, the near-death experience scale, the one that Bruce Grayson developed. And he found that their experience using a very specific meditation procedure uh, on the scale was virtually the same as other people who have had near-death experiences, although he acknowledges it's really not exactly the same because they're sitting in meditation. But in in any case, what you're suggesting, Karen, is is you, you don't need 10 years of meditation practice in order to enter into these states. You might need a couple years. I know that uh, many people will say it's about 18 months, maybe to two years, of regular meditating where when they finally start to notice, usually they're not looking for them, but they start to notice more kind of supernatural things happening, like uh, departed loved ones might start speaking to them, or they might have an increased intuitive capacity, um, all kinds of things. One person, when she was listening regularly after 18 months, she started having spontaneous out-of-body experiences, a kundalini awakening. Now, she was also doing other techniques, and I highly recommend people combine techniques because all of us are going to find a slightly different formula. But uh, we have also used that Grayson scale in our workshops for people to evaluate their experiences, whether they've had them in the past 
or whether they had them during the workshop we were teaching. And many, many people have felt that sense of inner peace, that sense of not being in this world. And I think it's so, so common, but we just don't talk about it because we've been trained in our society to think that people will think we're crazy. Uh, and so we don't talk about it. But I think these experiences are incredibly common. And I know when we encounter these people, we're a very safe place to share these experiences because we understand how common they are. And so lots and lots of people will share their stories with us, but not necessarily with their spouse or children, right? So that judgment is so strong out there. But yes, we can all cultivate these kind of experiences. And Evan actually uh, uses the audio recordings to return to those states he was in during his NDE to that reference point he had. And others have had that same experience. Absolutely. That's uh, what I think has been kind of the holy grail in this work for uh, decades has been scientists looking for a driving mechanism, some way to intentionally kind of alter our consciousness in a safe way that allows us to go deep within for that kind of exploration. Uh, I know Christopher Bache uh, in his book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, compared uh, his work, uh, you know, with high-dose LSD for spiritual work versus binaural beat brainwave entrainment. And he was using what I would consider to be um, a simpler and less advanced form than current sacred acoustics, but he was able to get tremendous benefit uh, from the sounds. And I would say when you look at the mechanism, you know, the psychedelic substances are basically affecting the neocortex and having a very superficial effect on uh, kind of separating our conscious awareness from uh, uh, our normal everyday consensus reality. And yet the binaural beat brainwave entrainment is actually uh, affecting circuits in the lower brainstem in a very ancient circuit, uh, you know, 300 million years older than those neocortical circuits that we interpret most sounds through. And I believe that's where a lot of the power comes from and why we, uh, we've seen such beautiful results in some of the people participating in the sacred acoustics encountering souls of departed loved ones, kind of spirit guides, uh, every bit of connection with that creative aspect. Asking of for guidance. Life. Sometimes you uh, have a burning question and you can just open up and invite that answer to come. There's so many ways that you can interact with your inner world, as we say. And the more we do that, the more you align with that greater part of you. So, Eben... When you are able to return to the uh, state that you experienced through a very profound near-death experience, as I recall, it lasted for almost a week, um, is it the same? Is it different? Uh, how do you feel? Are you able to actually recapture what you experienced then? Well, yes, I'm able to re-enter the various phases of, of my journey, the the earthworm's eye view, the brilliant ultra-real gateway valley, the kind of indescribable, ineffable, beyond a, a space and time core realm. Uh, I can revisit those realms, and not just that, but reconnect with the, the various uh, spiritual beings that I encounter there, like that lovely uh, guardian angel on the butterfly wing. She's become one of my regular guides, you know, my birth sister. And then, of course, my father. I described in Living in a Mindful Universe how through meditation I was able to connect with his soul, even though he had passed over four years before my coma and was not present in my NDE, 
Uh, again, I was amnesic for the life of Evan Alexander. That was a huge factor. But uh, I would have expected my father to have been there in some fashion. Uh, and yet I tell that whole story in Living a Mindful Universe about how encountering him two and a half years after my coma was such a complete game changer. And that was through meditation, through binaural beat brainwave entrainment. That's how I made that connection. And now he's become a very important kind of spirit guide to me too. I will stress, very important, is I have not yet fully duplicated uh, that that overwhelming sense of ultra reality, that experiencing of of you know so much spread across time and space. The the modes of knowing in an NDE are so far beyond our modes of knowing in this realm. That's one of the reasons people say they're indescribable. You can't put it into words. And I have not yet fully. Uh, engaged uh, through meditation, the same sense of ultra reality. Uh, so I must confess that that might be something I have to get used to, even though I'll keep trying it uh, with uh, deeper and deeper meditation. Well, I think it, this brings up the point that many people, when they enter into meditation, looking for these kind of experiences, I know I was one of these people, I was expecting and I wanted a very hyper real experience like Evan described. And that's I didn't get that at all. Uh, but I did have experiences very attuned to my particular personality, to my needs. And sometimes these were more subtle effects. Not always. I had plenty of what I would call profound experiences. But sometimes those subtle effects are the most profound. Sometimes just making one little shift in your thinking in that state can really change everything. So sometimes people just need to be aware to really not have a particular expectation of what might take place, but really just open and allow the experience to unfold. Because some people will have uh, readily have visual imagery. Some people will feel like they're watching movies go across the screen. Some people describe of their the screen of their mind. But others just get like flashes of color or just black or just nothing. And they think that they're not doing it right. And I will say that visual imagery is not the uh, what, what we think it is. It's almost like being a materialist in the etheric world, that we have to see something in order for us to believe that it's real. And so things can come to just knowings can come to you. Feelings can overcome you, all kinds of things. You can hear voices and your mind's eye is what's really seeing what's going on. And it may or may not be the reality we see here. But again, nonetheless, it is incredibly useful, important, and uh, just really our birthright responsibility to understand who we are and know that we are more than our physical bodies. And that's what we can find out. Not everyone is going to have this, you know, huge journey across all, all the, uh, the, the planes that Eben experienced, but that doesn't mean your experience is any less effective and important. Well, I've often been uh, impressed by uh, some Buddhist meditators and Zen meditators who basically say, you know, chopping wood, carrying water is is the ultimate experience. Just being alive, being here is is a miracle in and of itself. Well, I think that brings up for me um, that, uh, you know, we want to be more intuitive. We want to have these telepathic abilities. We want to, you know, have an out-of-body experience. But then 
I'm just like everyone else who ends up going through that process. We start to realize that those kind of things are a little more glamour. Uh, and the, the items that really were related to my personal and spiritual development, my ability to love and be loved, all of that was much much more important than just having an out-of-body experience. But I also did some remote viewing, uh, quite a bit of it, and that really helped me to validate that I could be uh, receiving information beyond the five physical senses just because I would get that validation right there in the remote viewing session. This is where you just... You get a number, for example, a six-digit number, and you just go within and come up with impressions like colors and senses that you have. And then the teacher of the remote viewing session will pull this picture out of the envelope associated with that number, and then you compare with what you've drawn and the impressions you've gotten with what's in the photograph. And uh, wow, that was incredibly validating. But I don't necessarily sit around and remote view all day just for the fun of it, right? It was a very good tool for learning that I had this ability. But then I started to apply it in different ways, more so in my daily living instead of, you know, these kind of activities. And another thing I'd add is I think uh, certainly in my practice of meditating an hour or two a day for the last decade, uh, I believe that it it has basically changed my kind of moment-to-moment uh, mental engagement with this world in beautiful ways. I think that that kind of uh, focus on meditation as a regular daily practice uh, can do a world of good to helping us connect with this universe much more kind of authentically. Uh, and that's what I would say is one of the, the real values of it. But getting back to the point you were making earlier, it's really about engaging with this world moment to moment and making our choices in this daily living based on this kind of deeper knowledge of self and of our purpose in existing, uh, that has been such a rich gift of all this. And much of my personal gains along those lines has been due to this uh, progressive uh, decade plus of meditation on a daily basis. I believe it's really helped to make me more intuitive, uh, much more kind of engaged, empathic, uh, certainly connecting with others, I believe has been enhanced through this regular meditation practice. Uh, now, you referred earlier to psychedelics, and I know there's been um, some interesting research lately that shows that psychedelic drugs actually seem to quiet the brain. The metabolism slows down. It, it suggests that when the brain is uh, quiet and less active, then consciousness becomes more active, like the brain is more of a reduction valve than the source of consciousness. Absolutely. Beautiful points you're making there. And uh, I know one of those early papers from Robin Carhart Harris and uh, Imperial College in London is in the bibliography of Proof of Heaven, even though the textual uh, relationship uh, was omitted by the editors in a final version of that book. But the reality is there have been several other papers confirming those findings. Uh, and it's fascinating, as you point out, using functional MRI, using magnetoencephalography, other very refined techniques for looking at brain activity, what you find uh, universally in, in uh, initially the findings were in psilocybin and magic mushrooms, uh, but then those findings were expanded. Uh, the group in South America uh, studied uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, the active principle in ayahuasca. And then the Imperial College group uh, did another study in LSD, one of the most potent of such serotonin 2A uh, 
uh, type drugs. And they all show the same thing. Anyone who's ever taken any of those substances would probably think their brain must be lighting up like a Christmas tree to explain all that phenomenal experience that they're having far and above and beyond what they're, what they're used to. And yet the difference when you look at the brain is that the brain is getting out of the way. It's going dark. When I saw that first study out of Imperial College, I was astonished because it totally confirmed what I had been through with severe meningoencephalitis involving all eight lobes of my brain. You know, having the entire neocortex taken offline can be a very powerful uh, kind of energizer of, of uh, non-local consciousness. And that's what I witnessed, uh, but I had no way of explaining it. And then these papers started coming out showing that, you know, your, your conscious awareness um, is not being generated uh, by the brain. That's exactly what these psychedelic studies are revealing. Uh, and the other side of the psychedelic research that I think is absolutely crucial in this discussion is that finally we're, we're starting to use uh, these substances for beautiful therapeutic intervention, especially, for example, psilocybin uh, in uh, terminal cancer patients with a horrific fear of death or people addicted to, uh, uh, you know, the worst physiological addictions like nicotine, uh, opioids, uh, alcohol, things like that. Um, and what's happening is that with one or two doses of psilocybin in a proper therapeutic setting, you can get months or years of benefit. The interesting thing is you don't need to keep taking the psilocybin. It's not like the psilocybin is actually making this change. What's happening is the psilocybin is thinning the veil. It's allowing you to connect with higher soul in a very rich fashion in a therapeutic setting so that you get beyond that fear of death, get beyond those addictive desires of the ego um, and what what the what these uh, studies are showing us is really the power of mind over matter uh, not that the psilocybin is the agent it's really a catalyst that enables your higher soul and that kind of power of mind over matter that we've all demonstrated through placebo effect but allowing it to manifest in very profound fashion I'm glad those studies are going on you know, when I think of mind over matter, uh, one of the most dramatic instances I can think of is your recovery. Your cortex was uh, pretty much completely gone. And uh, one has to assume from just watching this conversation or engaging with you in conversation, your cortex has somehow been restored. And I, I wonder, given your background as a neurosurgeon, uh, how do you think that happened? Well, I would say it's essentially the effect of kind of connecting our light body, our higher self, our kind of more idealized form of self that's following a soul journey. Uh, that's certainly not our little ego self, but that far grander aspect of self has tremendous power to heal. And that's exactly what you see in placebo effect. We've seen that you know, more than six decades of the medical profession taking placebo effect seriously, because, and that's just an admission by medical science that our beliefs, our thoughts, our attitudes can play a huge role in healing, even getting rid of cancer or advanced infections. And I'll, there's a little backstory to the case report on my medical records uh, that was published in Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in September 2018. Uh, and that backstory uh, is that the three physicians who wrote that report 
uh, did so because they were fascinated by my recovery. And, and they actually went even further than I did to show, to demonstrate from my medical records, a brain that was way too damaged to support any kind of dream or hallucination. And not only that, to remark on my recovery. The recovery is, uh, completely inexplicable from a modern medical viewpoint. Uh, and in fact, the way the peer reviewers at that journal had put it to these authors, they said, how do you explain this case? It doesn't line up. Uh, just as I thought, uh, reviewing my medical records, this is somebody who's going to die, not someone who's going to have a full recovery. And the thing that got it published was the three authors told the peer reviewers, it's because of the NDE that he had this recovery. So, very simply and straightforward in a medical scientific peer-reviewed sense, they were acknowledging the power of a spiritual journey like an NDE to open our eyes to our potential for healing and full recovery. And I think that literature, that kind of knowledge is very important to everyone who wants to make these journeys because it gives them a certain trust in the universe. And when you hear stories like mine or like Anita Morjani, whose lymphoma just disappeared after she had an NDE, or Mary C. Neal, the orthopedic surgeon who had a profound uh, uh, NDE during a, a 30 minute plus warm water drowning in Chile in 1999, um, and then they have a full recovery. This is simply an example. It's basically what religions have been trying to tell us forever, that kind of a spiritual engagement with the universe can help facilitate healing. And that's exactly what this is all about. And you're right, mind over matter is precisely uh, the kind of laws of the universe that's being demonstrated by this. But I'm, it's not good sure. for all I'm not sure all religions teach spiritual healing, but okay. some of them do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's part of the backstory in religions that yeah. they want to tell you what happens when you die and also... Uh, you know, not to lose hope that prayer has power. Yeah. And I would say that the power of prayer and afterlife and uh, all of that is fully fleshed out in the modern science of consciousness that acknowledges and studies these kinds of experiences. Well, you know, I think there's still some paradoxes, things that haven't been worked out and maybe for all I know never will be. Uh, one of them is the idea of time. Uh, we live in a world of, of, of time. We're uh, talking to each other right now because we had an agreement, an appointment, so that we could connect at a particular time. And uh, yet I, I keep hearing from uh, people, and maybe you can confirm what it, it's like, uh, that, that the spiritual realm is timeless, that time doesn't exist in the same way at all. That's absolutely true. And I think you don't need to look any further than the commonly described life review uh, in a near-death experience. These have been described going at least back to the time of Plato, 2,400 years ago, when he wrote about Armenian soldier Ur, dead on the battlefield several days. They put him up on the funeral pyre. Uh, and then he came back to life and he said, You're, when you die, your life flashes before your eyes. And the only thing that's important is really how much love you've managed to share with the world. The life review uh, is very commonly described as, as being 
ultra real. You know, you can experience things uh, from your life in great detail. These are not vague memories, but sharp, rich reliving. And not only that, but you feel the emotional power of your actions and thoughts on others around you. So the life review is also showing you boundaries of self are false. But one of the most important lessons from that life review is that the universe can show us things in profound ways that are completely outside of our little linear narrative of, of earth time. And in fact, what I found early in my kind of interpretation of my experience and trying to understand it, I had to come up with the notion of deep time. Deep time is an ordering of causality at a much richer, deeper level of earth time. What we see here for the events of our lives is a, is part of the fiction, part of the stage setting on which the drama unfolds. But there's a much deeper causal ordering of events. Uh, that's where you would be measuring, for example, uh, the progression of a soul through multiple incarnations or the evolution of all of consciousness, all of sentience uh, along the lines of uh, Pierre Tillard de Chardin and his book, a phenomenon of man in the mid 20th century, where he expanded on notions of evolution and talked about consciousness itself evolving. That's where deep time can measure the actual kind of progression. And it's, although it bears some loose relationship to what we call earth time, it's nowhere near so confined. And the paradoxes you talk about, for example, you know, will my loved one reincarnate before I die and get to see them in my deathbed vision? And the answer to that is no. Because from within that deep time, the, the the importance of relationships, of those loving connections, which I believe is the reason the whole universe exists, is for sentient beings uh, to kind of come into these discoveries about the the deep nature of the universe and their relationship to it. Uh, it's all about love and relationship, and those things uh, are primary in that realm. So they would never be disabled from an apparent paradox of Earth time. Uh, saying, oh, wait a minute, the loved one is already reincarnated. They're not available for you now. So the concept of deep time focuses the, the, the priority of kind of relationship and of learning and knowledge, growth and teaching. That is what I believe this whole existence is all about. But that, that feeling of no time that you're talking about that happens in the spiritual realm, that's actually one of the markers on the Grayson scale. There's 16 things that might happen. And one of them is this feeling of no time. And that is actually one of the first kind of sensations you can get in a meditative practice where sometimes you might think, you know, say you sit down to meditate for 20 minutes. Sometimes it might feel just like two minutes have passed and other times it might feel like hours have passed. And that's that feeling of no time. And really, we're all in that state sometimes, maybe when we're commuting on a regular route that we always commute, we're just kind of doing it in automated fashion. And sometimes it feels like we got home so much faster if we're very absorbed in a creative project or something we just love doing and we get into that flow state. That's that state of no time. So what's so interesting is that even if you're not having a near death experience, you can kind of cross over into that more spiritual way of being and just that feeling of of no time is partway there. So uh, sometimes we think it has to be some big, mysterious, incredible kind of thing such as Evan had, but sometimes just kind of getting lost in a creative moment can be incredibly useful, inspiring, and transformative. So opening up to that state of no time can be done from right here in the physical body. 
You know, I interviewed uh, Bernard Carr, a physicist and mathematician, uh, who has a, a theory of consciousness you I imagine aware of uh, involving, I, I guess the best way to put it is a hierarchy of states of consciousness, each associated with uh, hyperspace. And, and that there are mathematical relationships between different levels of hyperspace. And I wonder if uh, time doesn't work the same way, that at different levels of consciousness there are different kinds of time and they sort of form a, a nested hierarchy. Does, does that at all accord with your notion of deep time? I would say very much. I mean, I've, I've also been very interested in Bernard Carr's work uh, for a while. Um, and, and I must admit, part of that is a prejudice that lives in me from the olden days, from pre-coma, uh, because, you know, I studied physics, chemistry, uh, biology, all of the conventional kind of scientific stuff, plus quantum-informed versions of all that. Um, and so... You know, there's this notion that kind of hangs with you, especially if when you're following the standard model of particle physics and all that kind of thing, that it's all got to be dimensionality and it's all got to at least have some analogy with our notions of space and time and kind of the layout of things. Uh, so in essence, there, because I can easily envision that there could be aspects of physics that do not involve any kind of spatial or temporal concepts uh, that go far beyond that. And in fact, when you look at string theory and look at some of what's emerging in, in, in recent years involving hyperdimensional uh, kind of explanations, uh, they can get quite robust. Uh, but I think it's, a, it's certainly a fair game to entertain uh, uh, Bernard Carr's uh, work. And, um, and I think, uh, for example, having more than one temporal dimension is certainly part of that reality. And as you point, they could be kind of nested so that one is much more fundamental uh, than the other. Uh, you know, string theory easily postulates, uh, uh, you know, 10 or 26 or what have you uh, full dimensions beyond the three spatial and one temporal dimension we all admit to. Uh, and mathematically, those things seem to be beautiful and uh, even more perfect than our little limited uh, four-dimensional models. Uh, who knows? I mean, we don't know yet, but I think a, a higher dimensional uh, approach to this certainly can make some sense. Uh, what you discover when you get into that literature deeply is those other dimensions, the extra dimensions, in a sense, are called what's called compactified. They're wrapped up around the other dimensions in this space. But uh, who's who's to say what happens with certain kind of manipulations of conscious awareness if we're not able to start unraveling uh, those other dimensions and start gaining a tremendous amount of information from that kind of exploration. I'm under the impression uh, that when you had your NDE, uh, it wasn't necessarily that you entered into a space of complete timelessness. There seemed to be a sequence of uh, activities that took place over several days. Well, that's certainly how you had to describe well, it. Well, that's the yeah. problem, is our language forces us to do that. There, in fact, what I often try to convey to people is our modes of knowing in those realms are so much vaster than what we have here. It's like drinking from, uh, you know, primordial consciousness through a fire hose. Uh, and the reason is in these bodies, when we look at things, our eyes are kind of filtering, you know, they only take a tiny, tiny 
fraction of the electromagnetic spectrum that they're even sensitive to. And our ears, likewise, have very limited ranges. And, and then the information flood is so extreme that our brain ends up kind of filtering things and limiting things so that our conscious awareness at the end of the day only gets this tiny little trickle. Uh, and, and that is the basis of our linguistic description of things is the, that trickle. Well, no, these experiences happen where we can become entire swathes of the scene. It's what I call knowledge through identification. And that knowledge through identification, just as you often hear in a, uh, like a life review, many things can be happening at different times, different times. That's our language tricking us again, but simultaneously. In those experiences, you become others to be aware of their emotional realities and truths across broad swathes of time. And all these things can be happening at once. That's why it's so astonishing when you talk to people about their NDE that might have happened during a few minutes of cardiac arrest when their brain went inactive from uh, no blood flow uh, and they have these extraordinary experiences. They can be absolutely complete, you know, life reviews that cover every instance of their life. And yet, Three or four minutes of earth time have passed and, and then they come back with these extraordinary visions. And again, it's because earth time is not fundamental. There's a much more deep, uh, deep time kind of causality, a causal chain that's operative there that takes in uh, perspective all these grander aspects of soul growth and the evolution of consciousness itself. So we just have to broaden our minds and realize just what a tremendous limiter our very language is. And we think, at least I think in English normally when, when I talk to myself, it's hard to get outside of uh, language unless I'm in a deep meditative state. Uh, I can appreciate why you want to meditate an hour or two every day. Well, it's also the reason why we don't just, you know, write the books, send out the DVDs and uh, tell people they're going to get it from that. Karen and I realized a long time ago that personal experience and going within are the only way to truly get this and grok this and come to your own kind of deep understanding of your relationship with the universe. So meditation is absolutely essential. I mean, so many of us live our lives identifying with that little voice in our heads as if that's who we are, that little ego voice. And that is not the deep mystery of consciousness. To a scientist or philosopher, the deep mystery is not that little yappity-yap, annoying roommate of the voice in our head. It's the awareness of it. And that's what all of us can uh, cultivate and nurture through deep meditation is this kind of sense of our awareness of that neutral observer traversing the veil, leaving the little ego mind and its petty concerns in time out uh, because there is far greater wisdom to be found. And once you realize, as we argue in the book Proof of Heaven, I'm, I'm sorry, in Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, that consciousness is not created by the brain, but in fact is fundamental in the universe and that we share this one mind, that is where you start realizing that going within through meditation or centering prayer is actually your way of getting out into this universe at large. And gleaning more information from it, and also having a much wider impact of your free will in response to that information and kind of coming to know your soul path and then living it. Uh, that's what this is all about, is growing into that far grander self, far beyond the little petty concerns of the ego. 
I'd like to jump back to a term that you used when we first opened our conversation. You mentioned uh, that you were very interested, and, and the phrase you used was objective idealism. Uh, I know there are many different versions of idealism. Uh, can you explain more what you meant by objective idealism? Okay, first I must admit, having said all this about how the linguistic brain is little more than a parlor trick, you can imagine I'm more of a lumper than a splitter when it comes to labeling things. Uh, and so for me, uh, I actually uh, take idealism. The idealism is just the notion that the mental of, you know, that the realm of thought, the realm of experience uh, can actually be a dominant uh, kind of level of information assimilation and integration in the universe. That's what idealism is. In other words, not just saying, oh, it's a bottom-up causality with the subatomic particles all following the laws of physics and then chemistry and biology and that all that chaotic uh, sea of particles swarming by the laws of physics and chemistry gives us the events of, of human reality. Uh, that doesn't work. This is a way of seeing that there's a far grander top-down causal principle involved in uh, ordering the events of our lives. And that, I think, is being borne out very richly in some modern study of quantum physics. And specifically, I would steer people to the writings of George F.R. Ellis. He's a South African mathematician who's written extensively about top-down causation in quantum systems. And I think a lot of what he says is very applicable to the brain and to our understanding of this deeper reality, where we come to realize that the mental layer of the universe is absolutely essential uh, at determining the events of our lives and that human beings as sentient creatures have access to that mental layer. Now, I will also say in that discussion of lumping and splitting that I would say that objective idealism is in, in many ways similar to uh, analytic idealism. That's a term Bernardo Castrop often uses to describe his metaphysics, which I would say align beautifully with uh, the metaphysics that Karen and I proposed in Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, I would also say that um, ontologic or metaphysical idealism, in my mind, are synonyms. All four of those descriptors for idealism, from my point of view, are saying really the same thing. And it's essentially that that mental layer of the universe is ultimately responsible uh, for the events that emerge. That's why things like placebo effect and miraculous healing and NDEs happens. It happens because of the power of kind of the spiritual realm, uh, the power of prayer, of our kind of interaction with that God force of infinite love, how that has, plays a very real role in our ability to uh, kind of manifest the reality of the dream of our higher soul, essentially. But it's uh, that idealism. And uh, for the scientists in the crowd, there's a simple one-page essay. Richard Kahn Henry, the head of astrophysics at Johns Hopkins, wrote in the scientific journal Nature in 2005, entitled Mental Universe. And if you read that one-page essay, you'll see how he's pointing out that it's it's undeniable, the reality emerging from the modern study of quantum physics, and this is especially following the logic from Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen and their complaints in 1935 about quantum theory, John Bell's 1964 paper about inequalities that could be experimentally assessed, 
And then all the experiments done since the early 1980s that progressively show that, uh, you know, a bare bones interpretation of quantum physics measurement paradox, say Carlo Rovelli's relational interpretation, put that on top of Bernardo Castro's uh, object or analytic idealism metaphysics, and you start getting in a deep truth about the nature of reality that aligns very much with what Karen and I uh, put forward in Living a Mindful Universe. And it's where I see the whole world headed. The scientific and philosophical communities, because of the evidence, are inevitably headed to uh, de- uh defining and understanding the truth of idealism in our world. Okay, so while the academic scientists are figuring all of this out on our behalf and explaining how it all works, I would just like to point out that each of us in our individual lives can experiment and figure out that idealism is actually how it works. And I say this because I experimented this way my whole life. And that's why when Eben and I first met, he said, I'd been an idealist my whole life, but I didn't realize that it had that name. And so I'll give you an example. Um, I was in uh, just having a bad relationship with a coworker. We just weren't communicating very well. And she was my superior and not necessarily my direct boss, but it, I wanted to get along with her. And so I changed my behavior. I shifted the way I spoke with her. I used different language. I approached her in a different way. And by shifting my behavior, the relationship was resolved completely. And so so often we want to look at the other person. Something's wrong with them. They are doing something that's annoying us. Everything is... Uh, is centered inside of our brain. Evan often says, you know, the only thing any of us can really truly know is the inside of our own consciousness. And so that's our entry point into managing our experience, our unfolding of our lives. And the more we can pay attention to our inner world, the more the outer world seems to just line up and and take care of itself. This I have proven to myself over and over again throughout my life. Others have done the same thing. There's this uh, psychological term called locus of control. And to people who have internal locus of control are really more of an idealist, people who believe that their actions, behaviors, and attitudes actually have an influence on their unfolding reality. But those people who have external locus of control, they believe that the outside world is what is affecting them more than anything else, that no matter what they do, the outer world is going to have its say. And that's really a mindset of being a victim of circumstance. And it's much more empowering to understand how much our mental state matters. And so there's so much, uh, there's so many nuances to that, but just overall attention to the inner world through calming the mind, uh, processing emotions maybe that haven't properly been been processed from long ago. All of that will help each of us to kind of be more in touch with that essence. And so this scientific talk of it all is fascinating, but the experience of it is what really is uh, more visceral and uh, effective at getting us to understand these things. But both are very important. You know, you mentioned um, how you met. You briefly referred to how you met. And I've been meaning to ask you more about that. How did you meet? Well, we were, we were, this was three years after Evan's coma, and it was about six months after I had left my 25 year career in publishing, publishing and technology. And, uh, we met at this, uh, workshop that we were both attending. 
exploring sound as a way to expand consciousness. And when we first met, I knew Evan had had a near-death experience, and I'd known others who'd had them. I've spoken with many people who've had them, and I knew that they usually learned a really important personal, spiritual kind of lesson. And so I asked him, just making conversation, what would you learn? What was that big lesson? And he says, the brain doesn't create consciousness. And I was confused and I said, well, why would anyone think that it does? And immediately we knew how far apart we were on the spectrum of our belief systems. Uh, not anymore at that point because Evan had realized and sort of flipped his, his view 180 degrees. He used to believe that only the physical world was real and everything else was in epiphenomenon or, or whatever. And I had understood just through my life, no one really taught it to me. I just kind of learned it through trial and error that I did have this ability through my behaviors and actions. And so immediately Eben said, oh my gosh, you've been an idealist your whole life. And that's how that kind of came about because it is very clear from the start. I didn't really understand the materialist viewpoint. Even when I read books from the materialist viewpoint, it's very frustrating because I feel like they're they're very limited in their thinking. And so uh, I never had that mindset. And many people around the world don't have that mindset. And yet we live in this society where that is the dominant worldview. So yes, so that's how we met. Did you want to add? I was just going to add that um, I, 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 I think uh, Karen is extremely intuitive and empathic and uh, connecting with people. But I think I was actually a little bit ahead of her in sensing our connection and sensing this deep sense of mission that uh, our souls had been aligned in this work before. Uh, and I had a very strong feeling about that. And, and as she's telling you, she, to me, was a beautiful example of someone who just richly knew the the absolute truth of not only of idealism, but she um, felt and exuded this kind of sense of the binding force of love, this heart consciousness interpretation of my experience that to me resonated very deeply. And I could sense this resonance with her. And I, I will simply add as I an sensed aside, it too. Yeah. Well, I, I, okay, good. I'm <laughs> but, glad you but, did. <laughs> but he said, yeah, I totally sensed it, but I resisted it. I she didn't did trust resist, it. And I, and I knew it was real. But Evan said to me after one week of knowing each other, he says, Together, we're going to travel the world and we're going to teach people about consciousness and love. And I said, you're a nut. I am not going to be anywhere talking to anyone in a public fashion. That's not what I do. And we see who Who's right. was correct. So here we are. And, and the one other piece I'll add to that is... Um, when when our good friend, uh, Dr. Pim Van Lommel, who's very familiar with NDEs, has studied them, written some of the best books about consciousness. Wait, first, when, when I met Pim, I know what he's going to tell you. When I met Pim, we were at a conference in New York. And uh, Eben said, hey, we're going to go to dinner with uh, Pim Van Lommel, this cardiologist, uh, Dutch cardiologist. And I said... Hey, you know, I don't know if I'm really going to feel like I can make conversation with a doctor, a cardiologist. And Evan said, no, no, come on, you'll like him. And I did. And oh, what a warm, wonderful man Pim is. We are we are just in love. <laughs> well, I, I'm just going to tell you, though, that Pim, uh, the first time he met Karen at that meeting in New York, he was sure she had had a near-death experience. And, and he should know he's got a, a, a rich, long, decades long, uh, uh, 
career working with NDE patients. So he knows that beautiful, rich spiritual energy. And he just felt it, uh, in, in Karen. It was, and, and, and yet she has never had an NDE. At least so, that I recall. He suggested recall. I may have had one. I had seizures, unexplained seizures as a child that I grew out of. And he said, maybe you were having them there and you don't remember. A lot of people have these experiences and don't remember. That's what's so interesting. And I got to tell you this other story. We were talking earlier about how people don't talk about these experiences when they happen. And I will tell you, my mother is an incredibly conservative woman. And she, at age 21, had three children. I was in the middle and then a brother a year older, a brother a year younger. She was a military wife. She was not, ha she was not happy. She was living in some town, didn't know anybody, taking care of these three little kids. And she just was, she was just really overwhelming not to have family support. And so at night, she would just think to herself, just take me away from all of this. And she would leave her body. But and she, she didn't would, tell you that. No, 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 no. She would float over uh, the town. And I knew none of this until, as Eben said, it was about um, 50 years later, uh, She, I'm t t talking to her about out-of-body experiences and explaining to her what they are. And she's gently listening and taking it in. And uh, she says, oh, well, I've had one of those. I've done that. And she said it just like that. And I said, you have. And she told me the story. She not 50 years, never told anyone she was having OBEs. Our neighbor at a dinner party we were hosting told us he he's also a very conservative man. He, as soon as we started, this the topic came up, he's like, oh, yeah, lucid dreaming. I do that all the time. That's so cool. And people just start sharing their stories. But very conservative people even have sometimes had these experiences and it's no wonder they don't tell each other. Uh, it, you know, you've got to feel like you're going to be validated, not just made fun of. So I think our world is changing. It is. Yeah. As more and more people share these kind of experiences. We realize how common they are. You know, this world will shift. Well, it's one of the reasons uh, I love to do these interviews. Yes, and we thank you so much for doing it because you bring together so many opinions and open minds that discuss these things. We don't pretend to know all the answers, but we do know where we've gone wrong. And it's just lovely how many people share that perspective that you bring onto your program. I think when the world looks back on all this revolution decades from now, Jeff, they're going to look at thinking aloud and your efforts uh, to get this out to the world through YouTube channel as a tremendous catalyst for this shift. And I know uh, early on in your career, uh, you faced a lot of heat from the academic community, but I can tell you it was all worth it because in the end, truth will bend your way and you will be seen as a tremendous catalyst to help this world wake up. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the compliment. It's been a great pleasure uh, talking to you. I know we have another date in the, in the calendar to do a live stream. Can I just add one thing, just because we didn't mention, um, if anyone is curious about this sound technology we're discussing, go to sacredacoustics.com, look for the free download, try it for yourself and see what you think. There's lots of resources there and uh, it may be an effective tool to add to your practice. And, and for people who can't remember that, uh, the uh, description of this video will include your uh, URL. Good. Great. Excellent.
So uh, thank you both from the bottom of my heart for uh, this time. I, it's a delight to share with you, and, and I'm really thrilled to be able to share our conversation with our viewers. Well, thank you, Jeff, for having us on. It's always a pleasure, and we look forward to the next time uh, we get to talk with you again. I, I always enjoy talking with you. They're refreshing, liberating conversations. So and thank you. And so many topics we could go into. We have a very broad interest, <laughs> just like you do. And right. so, yeah, very, very rich and fun. And we look forward to the next talk. Right. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.